where people sit at the same table at the party and one side of the table start, starts singing a song like when they finish it the other side has to sing their own song Welcome to another edition of the Boys Tri-State Area Football Podcast. The Super Bowl is here and we are picking the Pats. Yep, it's it's Sam on the plunge, but we've pivoted to Mike Francesa, Tri-State Area kind of sports radio show now. On the topic of sports, we've got our opening clip was someone with a lot of team spirit. It was Bernie singing this land is your land with literally the soviets in 1988 yes and he in the video is shirtless and his wife is there so this isn't some sort of uh you know orgy situation it seems that a bunch of burlington officials went on this trip yes bernie and jane sanders went to the soviet union immediately after their wedding but this was because Bernie Sanders was, at the time, the mayor of Burlington, Vermont. Apparently, Burlington, Vermont has a sister city in the Soviet Union, Yaroslavl, or the former Soviet Union. And going there was a part of his official duties. He has written openly about this in the past. He jokingly refers to it as a honeymoon. But I think it's objectively pretty cool to go to the Soviet Union for for pleasure and to take... I mean. Being shirtless and singing and being drunk, that's like the rite of passage, I would assume, for any respectable visit to Mother Russia. But you could see how it would really trigger the Jen Kirkman, Neera Tandon sort of uh, anti-Bernie people. Yes, Bernie's critics from within the party that he usually runs are frequently bringing this up as kind of an own on him. Recently, they brought up another video from around the same time, from two years prior, when he was apparently in a primary for the Vermont governor. And he was saying what he always says, just, you know, the millionaires and billionaires, they've taken this country, and I I believe in socialism because it's about democracy. And basically the same stuff he says now. He's been on brand for decades at this point. But... They're also trying to share this as some sort of own. Oh, this video only it just put a big old smile on my face, I gotta say. Yeah, it was definitely the effect that the AOC dancing video had. It was kind of just like, all right, kind of a normal Bernie Sanders thing to do here. Yeah, at first I thought the USSR video was going to really go wild and people were going to bring this up all the time. But when you read more into it and... It was literally part of his official duties as a U.S. elected official. 
it kind of falls apart. And I'm very happy that both of these videos have had the same net effect as the AOC dancing video <laughs> where everyone just it makes them like people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders who have this kind of personable charisma. It just makes people like them more. But you could see how, you know, resistance, Robert Mueller, obsessed liberals, seeing Bernie Sanders saying in the Soviet Union, literally, this land is your land. <laughs> they are, like, that is like their, uh, like, bird box scenario. Yeah, well, they have a lot in common with the right, as we've said, these kind of center liberals who get into this red baiting and put up stickers that say GOP, but in this in the O, there's the hammer and sickle because it's Russia or something. They, they don't think about it very much. Currently, a uh, darling of a certain shitty centrist liberal is this guy howard schultz the billionaire i guess star former starbucks ceo yeah he has been aggressively pushing his new book and on this book tour he has announced that he might be interested in running for president not that he's running but just that he like i don't know is thinking about maybe running there's a lot of elements to this my Source in the finance community suggested that this was an effort to signal to the Chinese government that they had to show him and Starbucks some respect because the Chinese markets are going to be where Starbucks will have to expand in the coming decades. Yeah, he wouldn't want to have, a, I guess, Tim Cook kind of experience where Apple supposedly expanding into China was this massive failure or whatever. And it's very embarrassing for them in some circles of high the high corporate world. But, I mean, that's definitely plausible. I could see that being the case. I could see him trying to use this as a signal to international markets. But he also fits the mold as... I noticed in this article that you sent me by Luke Savage and Jacobin, he has this appeal that's sort of like the Malcolm Gladwell effect, I would say, where he's a, I'm a straight talker. I'm outside of the two-party system. Like, let's think critically and seriously here. But when you look into his policy, obviously, I think it's obvious to say that a lot of these billionaires who are talking about getting into politics, like Michael Bloomberg as well, are really kind of perturbed by the fact that being a whether or not billionaires should exist in the world is kind of up for debate at this point. The idea of a 70% marginal tax is being talked about on cable news. You've got plenty of center centrist people who are coming around to these ideas and remembering that in the 50s in the time of Eisenhower there was a 90% marginal tax on like high earners and maybe they're scared but Either way, this has just been so embarrassing, this entrance of the fucking coffee man into politics. Yeah, and I want to pull this quote because I really think it highlights what you said. 
Schultz, in a TV interview, said, I've been a lifelong Democrat. I look at both parties. We see extremes on both sides. Well, God, literally both sides. Sorry, that was me. Uh, Well, we are sitting today with approximately $21.5 trillion of debt, which is a reckless example not only of Republicans but of Democrats as well as a reckless failure of their constitutional responsibility. I want to see the American people win. I want to see America win. I don't care if you're a Democrat, independent, libertarian, Republican. Bring me your ideas, and I will be an independent person who will embrace these ideas because I am not in any way in bed with a party. He's not on any of the four parties in the United States, Democrat, independent, libertarian, and Republican. This is such a fucking child entrance into politics. And I think when he brings up things like the debt, people have gotten down on him a lot for being one of these, but the deficit or the freaking deficit. And I think he's trying to distract people from the large number that his is his personal fortune with an even larger number that doesn't really have as much bearing on, I guess, the average person's life. Whether or not we have the United States has $21 trillion worth of debt is honestly such a macroeconomic concern that it's beyond the vast majority of the people in this country. I like the Luke Savage's description of this centrist maverick who... yeah. He said, pledges heroic break from the scourges of partisanship and ideological excess and a return to the hallowed middle ground of yore. It's obviously a fever dream. And it's funny how there are clips coming out of Howard Schultz talking about Elizabeth Warren's proposed taxes on, I guess, higher earners, which are pretty substantial. I mean, her policy prescriptions are honestly probably the best next to Bernie for sure. But he's just on the verge of tears, apparently, in these clips. And you saw this with Davos, too, where the billionaires had and the financial planners of the world had to basically discuss the fact that in the U.S., which people thought was unthinkable until recently, people are talking about the idea of a 70% marginal tax and how to wrestle with that. And it seems like they're getting past the phase of, you know, they laugh at the Bernie Sanderses and the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes and all these new, I guess, further left politicians who are coming out of the woodwork. At first, they were laughing at them. Now it seems like they're actually going to fight them. It's honestly, I think, a good sign for the left that these billionaires are so fucking stressed about this. I also want to point out that it is funny that someone like Howard Schultz would want to throw his hat in the ring, especially in the case that someone like Bernie Sanders won the Democratic nomination because he would rather Trump win again than someone like Bernie win in order to save his like fucking barrels of cash. Yes, but I guess when we contextualize people like Howard Schultz and the people who are celebrated as centrist independents, like you said, or I guess doers and movers and shakers, like the way a lot of CEOs are talked about, it's important to recognize how this has been packaged and sold to our generation specifically, probably more than anyone else. But this idea of loving the grind and securing the bag. Hashtag hustle. Yeah, exactly. This kind of fetishization of overwork and 
overtime and you know putting in the you're a part timer for three different jobs you're you're your own boss you're your own worst boss and you force yourself to work constantly in a fucking co-living space not just that but every activity you do must be tied into your overall productivity yes Everything's got to have a return, but this came up in this great New York Times article titled, Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? This is written by Aaron Griffith, and it really unpacks this from the perspective of WeWork, this co-working company, which recently I did not know, but this was it's valued at $47 billion, and I guess the fetishization of being your own boss and an entrepreneurial spirit, I guess things that have kind of always been latent in American culture and American capitalism, but now are kind of like hitting this saturation point, I guess. Yeah, there were a lot of images in here that reminded me of Corey Pine's book, Live, Work, 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 Die. Like, he uh, saw that phrase, uh, the title of his book, like carved into one of the like small uh, rental spaces he had to stay in because it was like the only place he could afford. And so it said, live, work, 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 die. And it was like pretty bleak. And then in this WeWork space, they carved into like a cucumber in the water, do what you love, hustle harder. And one that's photographed in the story says, don't stop when you're tired. Stop when you are done. And yes, I I can't tell you how freakish that image is. I, I it's dystopian. That's the only word for it, I think. And I think that the fetishization of grind culture and the hustle has permeated so many aspects of our culture even things like music i feel like a lot of music nowadays is seen more as self-promotion or getting your brand out than i guess maybe i'm not trying to judge but i guess being a musical artist if that makes sense there's it just seems like like you said everything has to kind of be focused on your career and your I guess development, which is all codified in these capitalist, these commodified and I guess, you know, even corporatized terms. I mean, look at how someone like The Rock talks on Instagram. Look how I mean, it's it's bled into every sort of entertainer, businessman. We all are forced to look at this sort of shit all the time with any sort of famous person yeah i love the comparison in that the article made to stakhanov which is this kind of archetypal soviet worker who was used in i guess soviet propaganda to encourage people to work harder and he's he's there are all these you know tales of him just breaking down and putting his body to the limits to increase his production and for the goal of the revolution and shit but it's so funny how that is seen as i guess the in the antithesis of capitalism but our heroes these days or our ideals these days are people who work 90 plus hours a week and are just so much more productive and they hit their goals and they it's really the same thing it's just for a worse reason honestly yeah, Elon Musk, uh, this is in the article, but he tweeted, 
Nobody ever changed the world on a 40 hours work week. And then someone asks how many hours, and he said varies per person. About 80 sustained, peaking about 100 at times. Pain level increases exponentially above 80. Yeah, we all know that the amount of time you spend working is not indicative of productivity. As productivity has increased in this country since the 70s, wages have not. It's a complete myth. And this is all just designed to get you to work more for less and expect less. And it really is, it sounds like we're exaggerating by saying this is taking over so many aspects of life. But when you think about how WeWork's founder, Adam Newman, in January announced that his startup was rebranding as the We Company and is expanding into residential real estate, like you mentioned with the Corey Pine story, where he was living basically in a kind of co-living space because it's all you can afford in the Bay Area these days. Uh, it includes education the we grow school for your children they it's it's really like the the worry free company in sorry to bother you where people sign away their freedom their their they sign lifetime contracts to work for a company that provides guaranteed housing and food and it's it's just dystopian as hell but it's celebrated it's not and and it's people in our own damn generation the people who get the worst brunt of this obviously this is what older our bosses are telling us and a lot of people internalize it but sometimes i'm just blown my mind is blown by so many people of our generation who are take this to heart and take it at face value and just work their lives away to service their own I guess, what they think they need to do under capitalism. I was curious that when you read this New York Times article, did you think of the feudalism of several hundred years ago? Yeah, for sure. It, it really is. I don't think that capitalism is any kind of change has had great changes over obviously it's gotten bigger and more entrenched but it's not i don't think it's like it represents that big a change from the practices of yore so when you ask people to innovate these days they're like mm, what if we all lived together and we had and there were certain people who had to work in order to have houses but some of us didn't <laughs> they really just go back to these outmoded ideas of society yeah and they're just Stories of these people who, you know, gained 40 pounds and just gave away so much of their lives and especially the part where people embrace their work as if it is this religion, this church that you are attending every day and worshiping at like that to me spoke to a real uh bleak situation how do you think it got to the point where like like they say like well you know this generation's more secular so they need to find that spiritual connection in something and they got to work so much so what did you make of that yeah i thought it was an apt comparison to religion in a way because people really have this kind of blind faith that spending more time at things or being your own boss or you know there's a lot of elements of like even self-help and this kind of ideology that if you it's it's better for you to work 95 hours a week 
on your own startup, which may or may not succeed, you might lose everything, versus working 40 hours a week in a normal job that pays you enough and has benefits. Like that is that seems like the enemy of this culture is this idea that you could just have a reasonable job that paid you enough money, was productive performed a functional aspect of society and you got to go home and then live in a house and eat enough and have a family that is that is really the antithesis of this they're acting like this that's unattainable and that it's actually more realistic that you should spend 95 hours a week to be your own boss or even once you become rich like elon musk you're gonna work 80 to 100 hours a week it's just bleak as hell it's like a death cult as i frequently say on this show it's also just fueled by propaganda and psychological tricks via social media companies that have really reinforced this sort of like psychosis on the population that we are required to brand ourselves through them and connect that to our work. It's just, it's a fucking terrible situation, uh, this rise and grind culture. And of course, nothing is a better social media indication of this culture than LinkedIn, which is consistently the most dystopian shit I've read. Apparently I learned from this article that they introduced a kind of like Instagram live or Snapchat stories function for college students to, can you imagine being at like a recruiting function, seeing people just like who are about to go work at like Bain consulting or some bullshit, just fucking FaceTiming or Instagram living this shit out to their link to their professional connections. God, it's it's unspeakable. I always have such an urge on LinkedIn to shit post, and I realize that's really not the place for it. But uh, it, it, it makes me want to throw a fucking dagger into the telescreen. Well, I got another one for you that'll make you want to toss a dagger into the screen. But I, this actually made me really happy. So can I just <laughs> read you this tweet? Yeah, you you love this shit. Dan Dan loves this tweet, guys. I'm gonna shout this guy out at Captain's Log A Z. <laughs> Sean in A Z with a little cactus. I assume it's Arizona. I think he's a real resistance man. And this is the tweet. I love my wife, but if we were on a deserted island, I would make a raft. And if I only had room on that raft for either her or the only existing copy of the Mueller report, I would make sure to let her know that I would come back for her because I love my wife. <sighs> I, that is, I mean, it's art. It's art. That's all you can say about it. And I, I tried to follow like the line breaks as I read it because it is, it reads like poetry. Yeah, the enjambment of this is key. So what do you think in this Arizona man's mind set off these images of himself starving to death on a deserted island, making a raft out of, like, turtle shells and back hair, and, and, and sailing away, but only making enough room in a sort of Leonardo DiCaprio Titanic scenario, like, <laughs> only enough room for one person and somehow the Mueller report. But okay, what is the Mueller? Is it? Are you going on a raft with like the Mueller report, like in a bag? Okay, here's this Dan. Here's the scenario. He and his wife 
are on the same plane as Robert Mueller. Robert Mueller flies commercial for some reason. Oh, like that book Hatchet. They <laughs> the pilot has a heart attack. <laughs> He's got Mueller's got the the book in the briefcase. This the the book the report. In, I'm, I mean the report which has all the juicy details it's got the p-tape it's got the nude selfie all the things that have come out in the russia investigation the the plane is shot out of the sky by mike pence or somebody they're on the deserted island Mueller dies his dying wish is for the man to bring the report to safety and unfortunately he's only got enough canoe materials to make enough room for him and the report or him and his wife so he, he's in this predicament but it requires a lot of backstory, like I just said. I just thought it was weird. Like, so the ultimate way to show that he loves his wife is to take the Mueller report to civilization. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So she on the desert island is obviously posed a greater threat by Donald Trump than by starvation or dying of thirst. Listen, everyone, if you love your wife, your family, you will leave them behind and go out in the middle of the ocean with the Mueller documents. <laughs> I just loved that shit. Yeah, that's that's really good shit. But that's the explanation of the bizarre Mueller report, Desert Island, my wife left me tweet. And an important, I guess, Next step in this Mueller investigation, the most recent development or event of note that we've come across has been, of course, the arrest of one Roger Stone. The dandy bodybuilder. Dick Tracy villain. Um, the penguin from, from Batman. He is a really weird looking man. And he was arrested by the FBI in a pre-dawn raid. Yeah, because CNN tipped them off, man. You got to look below the surface. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So I loved that whole thing because I'm sure it was like the QAnon sort of people and even the like Fox News crowd believed that because CNN was following a news figure who had been saying for like weeks, I think, that he was expecting to be arrested by the FBI because they had cameras at his house, that was somehow suspect. Like, I I don't know. Isn't this, isn't his whole fucking shit that he loves being on camera all the time? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The obvious fucking conclude, like, counter to that is this <laughs> what you think roger stone didn't want to be filmed being arrested by the fbi are you kidding me yeah and he had to like do the fucking nixon salute thing and like ugh. he does that like he's photographed doing that fucking the v's for victory at least once a week because of course richard nixon as we'll get into is his idol but some of the like thornier aspects of this whole thing are so funny. There's a photo that has surfaced recently of Randy Credico with his dog, Bianca, who is mentioned in the Stone indictment because apparently Randy Credico was like was Roger Stone's go-between with WikiLeaks or 
something to that tune. And so the and, and Randy Credico is this kind of bizarre, I guess he's a perennial political candidate who is, I guess, further to the left of say he's active in New York politics and he's further to the left of the establishment Democrats in New York politics, like the Cuomo's or whatever. And I guess previously Larry David endorsed him in his Senate run in like 2010, <laughs> but it was just so <laughs> random. Along also Roseanne Barr at the same time endorsed him. <laughs> Very inexplicable dude, but he's involved in this because of WikiLeaks. And apparently Roger Stone was like emailing him and threatening him and his dog. He's Roger Stone in this in the indictment is mentioned saying, You are a rat, a stoolie. You backstab your friend. Run your sports fan, a stoolie. <laughs> No, the stoolie is a, it's the Grateful Dead skull, but with a, the Barstool Sports <laughs> logo instead no. of the lightning. Just cursed. Okay, anyway, I'm going to continue. He said, you backstab your friends, run your mouth, my lawyers are dying, rip you to shreds. Stone, he's like, he's so angry that he can't even fucking type out these threats. Stone also said that he would, quote, take that dog away from you, referring to Randy Credico's dog. <laughs> On or about the same day, Stone wrote to person two, which is Randy Credico, Quote, I am so ready. Let's get it on. Prepare to die, expletive. These threats have a very, like, Clint Eastwood in the mule. Like, this is what I expect that movie is. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of Gran Torino vibes coming out of this for me. But, of course... Roger Stone is not being actually like arrested or brutalized by the FBI. In fact, as was revealed by a subsequent NBC News report, he was released on a $250,000 personal assurance bond, which, I mean, when they, they say that when you get out on bond, he literally doesn't have to give up any money. He just has to promise that he will pay $250,000 if he does not return to court when he, on his court date, which is fucking obscene because of the amount of people as people, civil rights attorneys like Re- Rebecca J. Kavanaugh have pointed out who are held in jail on like $500 bail or for petty amounts of money. The United States is one of the only countries alongside the Philippines, you know, a country that we put a dictator inside of. We're one of the only countries that has this for-profit like cash bail still and there's the right wing, I guess, idea that he has been somehow victimized, which has been, I guess, today's development in this, I get the media zeitgeist on this has been today we've seen Lindsey Graham and Donald Trump saying that, the, you know, this old man was arrested in his pajamas and shit. <laughs> So apparently Roger Stone went with this argument after seeing on the Gateway Pundit, which is, and not to throw this around lightly, it is a like fake news website, totally confirmed. It's not like a legit website. They said, on September 11th, 2001, Islamist terrorists murdered 2,996 Americans and foreigners in four coordinated attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and a separate plane. They crashed in the airfield. On May 2nd, 2011, in the early morning hours, 25 Navy SEALs stormed Osama bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. The Navy SEALs arrived in two Black Hawk helicopters to storm the compound of the terrorist leader behind the 9-11 attacks. 
On January 25th, 2019, in the pre-dawn hours, at least six FBI vehicles and 29 FBI agents stormed Trump associate Roger Stone's home in Fort Lauderdale. The deep state officers were dressed in tactical vests with large weapons. They were wearing (laughs) night vision glasses. So the implication here is because they sent 29 FBI agents instead of the 25 Navy SEALs that they sent to bin Laden. Uh, that that somehow Roger Stone was being treated worse, and the memes are hilarious. Like there's one that's like, "Fact: Twenty-seven armed men raided Roger Stone's house." Also, fact: Twenty-five armed men raided Osama bin Laden's compound. And then there's other memes that have just different numbers. One says, "Our government sent twelve armed men to capture this man in a heavily fortified compound." It's bin Laden. They sent twenty-nine for this guy at home alone with his wife, and it says, "Ask yourself why." And the guy who fucking tweeted its name is Jack Meoff. <laughs> yes, of course, the right wing always has to find a wet, an angle by which they are victimized. And all of a sudden they care a lot about police brutality. It's not news to me that when the FBI does things like this, they bring in a dozen people and they make a big show of it. And of course, Roger Stone is probably not going to put up a fight. And they probably didn't need like six trucks to show up and take him away. But if you actually cared about that on any substantive level, you would have mentioned it. I don't know, like the 800 times they do it every fucking year to people who frequently they have, I guess, framed or enabled or entrapped. If you all of a sudden care about abuses by the FBI because of the way they treated Roger Stone, it's clearly a bad faith argument. Also, is it that fucking inconceivable or shocking that they'd have more guys in Fort Lauderdale than they would to, like, send to do, like, the Bin Laden raid? I just am totally... Like, the comparison doesn't add up. And also, if he's been treated worse than Bin Laden, can we throw him into the ocean? <laughs> yeah, it, can we fucking canoe his skull and <laughs> throw <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, it's there's obviously no comparison to be made between, I guess, the way the CIA or the FBI or, you know, the dreaded deep state operate out in foreign lands compared to the way they operate in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Unless, of course, you're talking about the way they treat people of color or poor communities. But I don't think Roger Stone is any should be any kind of cause celeb for civil rights advocates of any kind. But one of the funniest developments in this to me was the Nixon Foundation denounced Roger Stone on Twitter and distanced themselves from him. They said that there was a mischaracterization of him as a Nixon campaign aide or advisor. They mentioned that he was 16 years old at the time and only 20 during the re-election campaign of 1972. But people have obviously mentioned that Roger Stone's name appears in court documents linked to Watergate arrest. And they did kind of George Papadopoulos him with Watergate. They definitely like dumped that on him or blamed him for a lot of shit that they were all aware of. (laughs) All right. Let's take this opportunity to go into the pop culture corner because we're going to continue the Roger Stone talk with the Netflix documentary, Get Me Roger Stone. 
He loves the game, he has fun with it, and he's very good at it. I'm an agent provocateur. Political strategist. Controversial as you can get. An incredible capacity for treachery. Win at all cost mentality. When people think of Washington corruption, they think of Roger Stone. Those who say I have no soul, those who say I have no principles, are losers. Those are bitter losers. Yeah, this this one's is kind of a banger. This is a good documentary. This is a fun watch. It's a hard pill to swallow, but it's a fun. It could be a fun watch. To be honest with you, I've watched it maybe three times. Maybe I think this was the third time I've seen it because I think it's just a well put together uh, doc, and I think it goes through a lot of the sort of post Barry Goldwater machinations of the right. Yeah, I think it's an interesting document of the progression of certainly lobbying and also right-wing politics over the past 40, 50 years. But the critique that I think I have of this documentary is that it does kind of buy into Roger Stone's personal persona of being, I guess, larger than life and being this, I guess, performer kind of character or this secret agent, this, he calls himself an agent provocateur and he really builds up this kind of cowboy aesthetic of himself or also this kind of bad boy outlaw and yet godfather-like mastermind of all these political events that I don't think it's accurate to say that he orchestrated. Looking at what we said before about the sort of rise and grind culture, I am looking at the various stones rules that are shown yeah. throughout the film, and it just kind of reminds me of that sort of empty, like, expertise peddling. Yes, we should. I also wrote down a bunch of these stone rules when I went through the movie on my most recent viewing, and some of them are weirdly profound but a lot of them are pretty fucking stupid the stupidest one clearly is business is business i like uh what's in the public domain is fair game right a basic principle he's also has one that is to win you must do everything it's a very accurate comparison they are just empty silicon valley startup jargon it's so funny that he has been celebrated as this like genius of political thought when boiled down his ideas are literally just shit like think big, be big, and like it's better to be infamous than not famous at all. Like it's pretty basic like PR shit. That last one you just said is the most infuriating to me because it's literally just restating the fucking ancient adage that any publicity is good publicity. So you have a lot of very professional journalists in the documentary like Jeffrey Tubin, like Jane Mayer. And I think it was Tubin who said he is simple minded, but also Machiavellian, which I thought was kind of interesting because... I do think, like, yeah, he is very much a dumbass, but he does have this sort of chip on his shoulder where he has to, like, present as this, like, evil mastermind. Yes, and I think a lot of Roger Stone's perceived genius is that the people he advocates are are just powerful people. It's capital. It's the right wing. He's frequently appealing also to the worst in people. He says, as far as actual Stone's rules go, one of his big ones was early on, he 
kind of helped develop the field of negative advertising in campaigns to a fever pitch to the point that we get now. I mean, I live in Virginia. If you try, if you dare turn on cable or broadcast TV at any time, any time of the year, at any point, there's some stupid political ad going on, especially during election season, obviously, because it's a swing state. Although now it is more solidly blue, I think, than it was even a few years ago. But to me, I think of that a lot of the things we're going to say about Roger Stone remind me of in our first episode when we talked about Steve Bannon. There's this rush to assume that the darkest elements of the right wing are actually these kinds of political outsiders or these eldritch energies that are drummed up from out of nowhere and like the dark magic and sorcery that these men, I guess, perform. But really, it's just... it's. I think most of it is just that he appeals to this is how America works. He only says that he's playing the political game. He's he just made a business of doing the greasy stuff that politicians have kind of done for a long time and definitely in the United States, but around the world. So I think it's important that when we talk about how his like pack and the like rise of the sort of like greasy lobbying that Roger was a huge part of. Um, we see the new right post Eisenhower, who I guess at that time Republicans sort of had like an awe shucks, good guy earnestness. And yes. after Eisenhower, once you get into like the Nixon era and like the rise of people like Roger Stone, like the fighting dirty strategy is absolutely uh, favored over whatever, like, oh, geez, Republicanism was that preceded it. Right. And a big part of the actual Stone's rules, his actual policy, is his work on the Ronald Reagan campaign in the 80s. And I guess nailing down the Reagan Democrat, the kind of he appeals to the kind of suburban autocrat in everybody. I think he's that's one thing he's actually pretty good at. He keeps he brings up the fact like a million times that he is of a Catholic background and he feels like he can identify this silent majority and that he's like very good at that but like i said he's you're just when you appeal to just the worst of people then you get a lot of people by definition because there are universal dark thoughts that people have and if you turn them into something tangible it's powerful and i guess that's i think his real skill in terms of that you know his eldritch you know energy i guess if there's anything that I took from this viewing that I think like Stone really understood, it's this idea that he said the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. This idea that if you could get the conduit of that is Trump, like if you can just have him on every channel all the time, that like there's power in that and i think he was right about that as like stupid and sort of like basic as it is i think it was something that he really recognized and oftentimes in history and oftentimes we'll see in this documentary he kind of just shows up for important historical moments and stands in the shadows but in reality he wants to be perceived as like a bigger influence than he is and i think you know there's so much fucking evidence of that 
Right. So mainly the reasons we talk about Roger Stone, the reason he has a documentary is mostly his big claim to fame is obviously Black Manafort and Stone, the lobbying firm that he founded after helping Reagan get elected, which provided access to people in the Reagan administration for a good amount of money. And he made a ton of money. He made, he did lead to this kind of birth of the just outright lobbying industry in DC. Previously it would be something called like government relations and plenty of definitely a lot of firms still call it that. But I guess he did a lot to make it a very accepted aspect of American politics that there is this lobbyist class and that lobbyist is like a specific job. And a big part of that was literally just the fact that he raked in money doing it. Of course. Yeah, he talks about how it was the shit because he made a ton of money. And he has this kind of, you know, absolutely nothing matters except for the dollar mentality and except for personal gain. And at the time, they do mention the fact that he was working with dictators that the U.S. had installed around the world in, like, Latin America and Africa. And they were called the torture lobby and they were, like, rehabbing their images around the world. Yes, and they and they also helped them secure a lot of lucrative aid packages despite, you know, worldwide condemnation of countries, you know, autocratic countries like Turkey or uh either way, that's what like we're trying to nail down the actual stones rules here, the actual stones rules. That's an actual stones rule is just take a lot of greasy people's money, people who have money if they're bad, appeal to their worst instincts and make things good for them so that they put money in your back pocket that's really it i'll say this idea that morality is weakness and everyone's for sale comes back up a lot right but it's also nothing new it's just a shitty out capitalist outlook on the world this is the way the world is structured to run he's just naming it and appealing to and people are people don't like that it's the same thing that people don't like about trump they don't like that he's really just such a perfect characterization of what a fat self-satisfied capitalist american looks like like he's a perfect representative okay but then why it's a stone and like you see this like scaramucci wrote a fucking book called like the blue collar president like why does stone and these Trump sycophants, why do they say he's anti-elitism? Why do they say, it's like the quote is, anti-elitism is back with Trump. I just, I could not stop laughing when he said that because what is more elitist than Trump? The thing that I think people miss when they don't care, they don't understand why Trump isn't perceived as an elite is that Trump is dumb as rocks and that makes him relatable to a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, even though he is an elite objectively, he's a rich kid, they see him as somehow different than all the others. And I think it's just because he's dumb and talks at like a fourth grade level. A scene that I really also thought was funny was this, I don't know why he was lit like this, but did you notice when he was like, I guess it was the New York Metropolitan Republican Club, like where the Proud Boys faced off you know in the upper west side of new york city a couple of uh, months ago right yeah i remember that and it's just stone and like spooky lighting like he's only lit really like under his face like one of those like corny like holds a flashlight under your face while you <laughs> tell a scary story and he's saying like you know bill clinton is essentially bill cosby <laughs> it's just yeah like i said he just tries to 
bring out all of the shittiness that's like latent in our culture. And I think it's funny you mentioned how he takes credit for orchestrating events that he's just randomly present at, like the Brooks Brothers riot during the 2000 election, where there was this perceived theft of ballots by like Democratic operatives and people stormed this fucking like strip mall where this count was being done and he was just sort of there and he says that he in the documentary he literally says something like oh i told them to go to do the right i'm like no you fucking you were just there i mean like you already live in florida dude (laughs) it's he really does i I think he is a an important figure but he really does oversell it and i think the documentary because the camera does weirdly love roger stone it almost draws this out of him as well i mean dan go into like some of the ways that he is dressed in this film he is i mean style is a huge part of him he's got these like sunglasses that cover like half of his face he's got the these suits that just are like flowing and like clearly like very expensive he's the kind of person who would walk with like a cane he has like an actual pocket watches and shit he, he looks like jp morgan <laughs> yeah like i said before he's, he's a dandy he's very much into his aesthetic and that aesthetic is like third villain in like the dark knight rises for sure and it also contrasts with dc which is very much people dress more conservatively on average here than even in you know even than like bankers in new york or something like that i actually wanted to also mention with the brooks brothers riot just if he actually was responsible for this like swinging of the 2000 election and like i think what he's implying is clearly untrue that like he orchestrated this singular event which was the singular event that prevented al gore from having his recount and made george w bush president and i don't see the filmmakers doing enough to challenge that but i don't think what they're trying to do is present stone as credible I think they're just showing it. No, I don't think there's any attempt to do that. No, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. I don't think they're attempting to convert you to Roger Stone. But there is this element to which that you cannot forget. He is such a performer. He frequently, he said something to the tune of like DC is Hollywood or politics is you know, Hollywood or show business for ugly people, which is kind of spot on. I think I've mentioned that on this show, how people fanboy and fangirl out so much here, but for politicians, the way I guess uh, starving actors or up-and-comers in L.A. kind of idolize the more established actors or famous people in their city. And I think with Roger Stone, one of the Stone's rules that is bizarrely profound is when he says past is fucking prologue he's really big on shaping just the narrative of history to make it look like he did the whole thing if that makes sense he always want he's he's just so intent on telling his this grand tale of his development and how he moved from one phase to another. When you actually break down what he did, he gave birth to a lot of these 
fucking vampiric industries that predate off of campaign finance and the horse race politics in this country. He was responsible for just the growth of PACs as a political institution. He hung out with slime like Roy Cohn, a fixer from who predated even Black Manafort and Stone. Who introduced him to Trump. Of course, who introduced him to Trump. It's also very telling that later on, Stone introduces to Trump this idea that, I guess, uh, Barack Obama wasn't born in this country. One of the commentators literally says he thinks that Roger Stone told Donald Trump that he had Barack Obama's birth certificate, and that just stuck in Trump's goldfish brain, which is genuinely plausible for sure. But one of the things that I think doesn't get brought up as much is the fact that the reason he's seen as such a political outsider these days is not because he's this Machiavellian figure or he works in the shadows and he thrives on this and he's just too dangerous for the mainstream Republican Party. It's because he and his wife are doing like polyamorous swinger shit. And at the same time as the Monica Lewinsky scandal about pictures of him and his wife were circulated i guess on the internet and he denied that they were him but they're fucking pictures of him it's like it's obviously you and obviously it goes to show a lot of his double down nature but that's also why mainstream republicans don't fuck with him and why he is always kind of in the shadows after 1996 And if you present it that way, if you look at it from a more objective point of view, instead of believing this whole, you know, narrative tale that he is spinning for you in this documentary, you realize that similar to Steve Bannon, who he later on in the documentary says is the Trump administration's secret weapon, which obviously didn't pan out. And we've made a lot of fun of Steve Bannon's post-Trump misadventures. These guys aren't like gods. They're just good at spinning shit and acting like they are orchestrating things that they would have already come out on top of anyway. I think the swinger scandal, whatever you want to call it, you know, Roger Stone hiring big buff men to fuck his wife while he watches. I think this was a time when he like really like lost control of his own narrative And that's why he faded into the background, like you said, because it was highly humiliating for him to lose control of his narrative. Exactly. And he even spun that later on into his appeal. Like when they interview him in the present day, he talks about how he's he's like, I'm a classic Republican. I'm pro marijuana. He shows off his Nixon shaped bongs and his disturbing Nixon memorabilia room. Well, and they, they go to the gay pride parade with and have footage of him there. Yes, with the log cabin Republicans and shit. And he's once again spun that into, oh, I actually meant to. And now he's out about the fact that he and his wife are polyamorous. And it's like, okay, so you didn't fucking plan this from the beginning. You're he just retcons his whole fucking life. Yeah, and, you know, he says, oh, I brought down Elliot Spitzer by, uh, you know, X or Y contact I had with some prostitute. And he also (laughs) worked with Al Sharpton's campaign in 2004 (laughs) because I guess he was so isolated from the Bushes, even though, according to him, he had organized this riot that brought Bush the presidency 
ob- he's obviously full of shit and also, anyone could have told told you from the start that Al Sharpton is clearly an op. I mean, come on. But either way, the the documentary, and it sounds like I'm kind of slamming it for buying into the Roger Stone mystique, but obviously that's what it came to represent, and I don't fault the makers for it at all. And the participants in this are really unreal. I love... Obviously, you have a lot of interviews with Roger Stone, who loves the camera, and the camera bizarrely loves him. You have a bizarre straight interview with Donald Trump. Paul Manafort, of course, his former business partner in Black Manafort and Stone, uh, is in this and giving just fucking dead-eyed, bizarre like interviews. He's weirdly forthcoming, I thought. Oh, and I think he was absolutely honest in his assessment that... Roger completely exaggerated his role in Watergate and just used that as the model for everything he did after. I also thought it was funny that after the Megyn Kelly blood coming out of her whatever comment by Trump, uh, Trump claimed that he fired Roger Stone, but then Roger said he quit. So it was like this weird Michael Scott situation. <laughs> Yeah, I, once again, it, it's really hard to take anything that Roger Stone portrays at face value. He said he was going to like plan days of rage and violence at the RNC in Cleveland if there was a contested primary. Which, of course, didn't pan out because they just handed Trump the primary anyway. But I also doubt there, if there had been that kind of outrage probably would have happened with or without roger stone like people obviously the chuds would have been mad if they pulled the rnc pulled some chicanery and didn't give trump the nom but it wouldn't be the result of roger stone he's just aware that these chuds are out there it's not like he put them there or anything which is what he would lead you to believe but either way the the documentary is a great watch it's uh it does play the narrative but i think it's important to critique it as well and uh kind of know when stone is embellishing and all that yeah and two more things uh the footage of of roger stone and alex jones storming the young turk set uh, was (laughs) very funny and the way he just triggers chank unger is hilarious yeah, and also I, I love that because, you know, I'm no fan of Roger Stone, but Chenk Uyghur is absolutely one of the worst and stupidest people on the left, like the broadly left. He is, honestly, he's what, he's been in the past denying the Armenian genocide, and he, he's just very toxic and also just so dumb and easy to trigger. And it's funny, Roger Stone's clearly having a great time with him, and Chenk is like howling at Stone. He's, what is he saying? Just like, you're the spot of Satan. He's totally going off and it makes him look like an idiot and lastly uh on this viewing i definitely recognized more than like the first time or two that i had seen the movie that like the last line the line where roger says nobody would hate me if i wasn't really good at this you know whatever uh, by that paraphrased i just completely uh disagree with what he says <laughs> in that statement uh, this time whereas the first few times i viewed it i did buy into the fact that eh, maybe he did kind of like pick up on some things before everyone else but this time it was more just like oh no this is more of just your stones rules garbage 
Yeah, it really is. It's a lot of spin. And unfortunately, the documentary plays into a little bit of that. But it is such a good story to tell that I can't fault them for getting into it at all. But either way, I think we spent enough time on this. Let's let's pivot to another story that we truly, truly enjoy and which is now being used to manipulate us for financial gain. So Jeff Bridges teased that something was going on with Jeffrey Lebowski. And folks, guess what time of year it is? It's guess what? It was just a fucking Super Bowl commercial. And this sucks. The dude would not abide this (laughs) Super Bowl commercial. I I mean, uh, they fucking mention the white Russians in it, and then he's like, no, I'll instead I'll have a Stella, and it's just, fuck <laughs> this. The dude is not a like a beer drinker, or not like a, if he's a beer drinker, he's not a Stella drinker. I mean, Stella is for, I don't know, Americans who want to pretend that they're in the middle of continental Europe or something. I don't know anyone who drinks Stella for any kind of good reason, and it's definitely not the dude. No, and the ad also had Sarah Jessica Parker as Sex in the City's Carrie Bradshaw, so I don't know why they felt the need to do two iconic protagonists, but there you go. Um, it's unfortunate when we can't just let our her fucking wonderful film idols be and it's just very unfortunate that a counterculture figure sam is forced to go to this like ritzy bar that like a sex in the city character would hang out at it just doesn't really seem like (laughs) (laughs) the dude is all about brunch and partying so last thing in the pop culture corner we have Jim Carrey talking very, very seriously to art critic Jerry Saltz and Vulture. <laughs> yeah, this article is a really good find. <laughs> I don't want to give too much time to like, it's a really long interview and there's a lot to that we could go on. So did you want to just go through the artwork? The standout for me, I think, was the Giuliani one. Okay, I'm scrolling down now, and let's see. What stood out to you about this? Because I love the detail of the bottom teeth being extremely rotted and yellow. Yeah, definitely the detail on the teeth on Rudy Giuliani in this pick is really is really compelling, but... I also love it from an aesthetic perspective in that it kind of reminds me of the Chairman Mao pictures where he's <laughs> just on the red background. And it's kind of this bizarre recasting of it. I mean, the way Giuliani is portrayed is so spot on and it's such a good likeness of him. But it's also so specific in his like, it's, in his, like aesthetic choices like you said, specifically the bottom teeth being disgusting while the top teeth are, you know, immaculate and obviously false. And the kind of vaguely senile rolling of his eyes, the you know, blank stare upward as he just mindlessly fucking screams. There's something very compelling about this. And this article I definitely was went into it looking like, okay, they're gonna convince me that I love Jim Carrey's art. And to a degree, especially with this one, they succeeded. So, 
I also was drawn to the Mitch McConnell one titled Bipartisan Shit. <laughs> and it's this, like, looks like a children's coloring book sort of image of a turtle with Mitch McConnell's head that is holding a bipartisanship flag, which says bipartisanship. And I, oh, well, Jim is nice enough to clarify. Here he's in front of a blue wave and it's depicted as a turtle. The nerve of a man who's been trying to destroy everything with compassion, everything we've tried to do that's good for the country. Uh, <sighs> <laughs> Of course, the what makes these images is Jim Carrey's commentary on each one, which veers between, I guess, something kind of beautiful and genuine and like left wing in a weird way, and something that's just kind of you know liberal dad sharing memes, uh, you know, liberal baby boomer. Right, like there's one that's just Trump as a cyclops. <laughs> I like that one too, though. I like that uh, aesthetically. I think that's one of his more aesthetically compelling ones. His his caricatures of the right wing are, I think, the best part. The background is always the most chaotic. Yeah, and I really have the most problem, though, with the Colin Kaepernick Nike one. <laughs> yeah, that one's a bit much. Okay, so in this image that you described, we have... Of course, Colin Kaepernick kneeling in his 49ers uniform. To the right of him, we have Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who were the gold medalists and bronze medalists in the 1968 Summer Olympics, who raised their fist in support of black power and human rights generally. And then... To the upper left, we have, this is the weirdest one, it's Jesse Owens running through a swastika, which I guess is a symbolization of him winning the 1936 Berlin Olympics and, you know, in some way disproving the eugenicist beliefs of the Aryan you know, project. And then to the upper right hand corner, it just says the Nike logo and just did it, which is in reference to, I guess, when Nike had Colin Kaepernick as one of their, I guess, spokespeople or one of their, they, they, what, did, what was the Nike thing? Well, it was uh, an ad campaign featuring Colin Kaepernick uh, in general, I think rolled out over a while and they got a lot of praise for being woke. Right, and so this is a celebration of that, and then the bottom it says, "Night, you know, Nike just did it, the right thing." And of course, he goes into this like full-throated, very boomer dad, you know, thank God for these, this co- good corporate leadership, kind of spiel towards the end of it. And I, yeah, this is probably one of the most distasteful ones that they put up because it just boils all of this down to corporate messaging and. I think some of the ones that I've seen of Jim Carrey that were not included in this, like the one of the the drone blowing up the school bus of children. <laughs> yeah, that one was rough to look at. Some of these are a little too honest, which is one of his one of the things that he mentions in this is that his art is about honesty and he couldn't stop drawing these even if he wanted to. He does shit on the billionaires towards the end, which, I mean, as, like, a, an A-list actor himself, I'm sure 
you know, that's not something that everyone in his uh, position in Hollywood would do. I mean, he says literally, like, I will not be on Instagram, like, for his art. And he said, we need to, because it's owned by Facebook, we need to stop billionaires from destroying our culture. They have no conscience whatsoever. And what they did in the 2016 election is just unconscionable and should be punished. I don't think Mm -hmm. it's enough to go, okay, let's just regulate them. We need to regulate them for sure. Billionaires, shouldn't you be putting your money into the country, to the people who need it? Flint, Michigan, rape kits, education, things like that. Why can't we take care of ourselves? Elon Musk wants to make a rocket ship to Mars. He better make room for billionaires, man, because if they stick around here much longer this way, their heads are going to be on sticks. I mean, I I like that. Okay, when you're (laughs) wanting to fucking hate on Jim Carrey, and honestly, Jim rules. Yeah, no, he definitely comes off way better in this than I think uh, I expected for sure. And... I think it is funny that he rejects. I also have the belief that Twitter, I think, is a little better for art than Instagram. Because Instagram, you're kind of more confined by the format of the medium. Whereas on Twitter, you can, I guess, do any shape image you want. You don't. There's no restrictions on nudity. You can kind of put whatever you want up there. So I appreciate Jim Carrey's artistic integrity, I suppose. But I think that his... Reasoning is obviously not sound. You know, the founders of Twitter are billionaires. <laughs> I think Jim Carrey watches CNN all day. Yeah. <laughs> and just like needs to express himself because his brain, like many others, has been just melted by cable news, which like I get it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I can't I can't hold it against too many people, but at least he came out of it hating Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. This is the right reaction to take is that billionaires are the problem. I think that's the most reasonable explanation if we're going to go around blaming anybody. But I, Dan, how much do you buy into the belief that Jim Carrey's brain is fried from portraying Andy Kaufman? You know, I watched the documentary on uh, Netflix about it, and yeah, he um, definitely looked like sort of different person after yeah and and of course that kind of life will take a toll on anybody and i guess we wish jim carrey all the best in his artistic and non-artistic pursuits yes and uh story time what do you have for this week sam i think i should just give a rundown of some of my life of crime stories from the ages six to eight when I got suspended from school an inordinate amount, and I was definitely known as, like, the bad kid at that time. Did you have a bad kid in elementary school? Yeah, there were definitely some bad kids. Now, are these sort of infractions the kind of things that you look back on with utter shame, or are they things that you think you were over-policed for? Generally, I think I was over... I understand their reasoning, but it was definitely over-policed. And frankly, telling them to people with a, without enough context and just with a straight face usually elicits some sort of response. So I'm just going to dive right in. The, the first time I got suspended from school, when it was in first grade, and I was six years old, and I remember I had thrown leaves at someone, and I got in trouble for that. And I was sent to the principal's office. And as I was being, I guess, dressed down or whatever, and they were, my parents came in and they like 
were doling out punishment and shit. I said something to the tune of, I, I'm so stupid, I'm going to kill myself. But I'm six years old when I'm saying this. I obviously don't mean it. But instantly they suspended me from school for like two weeks. Wait, they punished you for saying you were going to kill yourself? <laughs> yes. They were like, they had apparently a zero tolerance policy on it. Of course, the context, like in the 90s, we're going to school in this beginning, I guess, of this panic over school shootings, I think, was in like the late 90s, early aughts when we went to, you know, elementary and middle school. And I think that now, obviously, it's, I mean, I can't blame people for being overzealous about school policing now because schools have become this. You know, no one knows which one's going to be the next one to get shot up. It's become this like battleground. But at the time, definitely, I think in these instances, maybe I am over policed. The second time, I was probably in the wrong in second grade when I tripped my gym teacher because I thought the rules of volleyball were unfair. Wait, come again? <laughs> I tripped my gym teacher. <laughs> were they hurt? No, she just like stumbled. I just stuck my leg out. So, what was your gripe with volleyball? I think I didn't think it was fair that the team that scored got the ball back. So, and you got, and so if they scored a bunch of times in a row, they just kept getting the ball. I was like, well, now it's our turn to get the ball. And then the lady was like pissed at me or something, or said, no, that's not the rule. So I was like, okay. And I tripped her. Yikes. So this time, okay, I'm not in the right. I think that's a fair, it's a fair uh, assumption. The next time, probably also not in the right. I threw a rock at a teacher. <laughs> Throw a time, rock and a teach and they're making 30 grand. I know, not woke either. I apologize to all the teachers that were harmed in my second grade. This 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 year doesn't reflect well on me. Okay, so we're almost out of the woods here. The fourth time I was suspended from school was in third grade when I I think I was I was angry for some reason, and then someone and then someone said, "Well, you're going to go to the principal's office," and I said, "Oh, well, she's going to have to make me go to the principal's office with a machine gun." <laughs> and again, in the in the zero tolerance days, this just did not fly. So I was yet again suspended. But wow. all of this just left me with maybe I'm also leaving the fans with this idea that I was like a bat, like a problem. I thought that I was genuinely like out of control at the time. Yeah, that's well, you know, based on what you're telling me, you seem like uh, a regular Dennis the Menace over here. <laughs> All right, so either way, I'm not coming off particularly well. The last time that I was suspended, it was an in-school suspension, and it was doled out to me in like fourth grade when I accused my best friend, who I'm still friends with, of uh, possessing a large collection of condoms. <laughs> that should be encouraged. <laughs> I know, but I think they were just mad that they were like, where'd you learn that word? And we were like, uh... I don't know. I, that one maybe was I, I. I was also over policed, but I guess at this point I had just been known as a problem entity. But I guess after that point, I cleaned up and stopped getting in trouble at school and got good grades and went to college. And you know, I have a job now, so everything turned out okay. But 
as Roger Stone says, the past is fucking prologue. <laughs> so this is this is how I was f- first launched into our society. It was just this fitful birth. And with that, we will conclude the plunge for this week. And I hope you have been enjoying our weekly episode release schedule. We're trying to really stick to that. And I think we're coming out of this with a deeper appreciation for the potential of the dude to sell fucking popular beer brands. The dude in like a we work space just pushing himself to the brink for coming up with more branding ideas for his pitch to the Stella Artois company. You know, and considering like the amount of shirtless footage in Get Me Roger Stone, I'm surprised that the shirtless political figure we started the show discussing was Bernie Sanders. Well, with Roger Stone, it's not special when he does it. I mean, genuinely, come on. We haven't seen Bernie Sanders shirtless yet, have we? Except for like pictures of when he was younger. Yeah, and someone tell the coffee bitch Howard Schultz that we like people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez precisely for the reasons that you say she's bad. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to all the billionaires out there, as long as you hand over the excess wealth that you have hoarded... I think it'll be okay for you. I, you know, I, I'm not in the, here to crack heads. I think that you should probably have to give up most of what you have. I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. And if there are any uh, brawny males, uh, Roger Stone's looking for someone to, you know, fuck his wife. <laughs> in front of him as he, maybe he watches or sometimes maybe he lets his uh, Nixon back tattoo watch the action. <laughs> Now that's what I call the stone zone. All righty. Enough of these stones puns. <laughs> we're, we're calling it a night. It's seven degrees outside. All right. It's uh, at Spaventacular on Twitter for me, Dan Spaventa, to follow Sam Wagstaff, my co-host, my Washington correspondent. It's at Wagstank. And the show, uh, at Plunge underscore podcast, All right, that's it. Goodbye. Bye. Part three. three. Summer Buddy Holly, the working folly, the golly Miss Molly, and boats. Hammersmith Pally, the Bolshoi Bally, jump back in the alley, add nanny goats. 80 millers camels, Dominica camels, all other mammals plus equal boats. Seeing Piccadilly, Fanny Smith and Willie, being rather silly, and porridge oats. A bit of grin and bear it, a bit of come and share it. You're welcome, we can spare it. Yellow socks, too short to be haughty, too nutty to be naughty. Going on 40, no electric shots. The juice of the carrot, the smile of the parrot, a little drop of claret, anything that works. Elvis and Scotty, days when I ain't spotty, sitting on the potty, curing smallpox. Reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful. Part three. Reasons to be cheerful. Part three. Reasons to be cheerful. One, two, three.
cheerful. Part three. Health service glasses, gigolos and brasses, round or skinny bottoms. Take him on to Paris, lighting up the chalice. Wee Willie Harris. Bantu Stephen Beeple, listening to Rico. Harpo Groucho Chico. Cheddar cheese and pickle, the Vincent Motorcycle. Slap and tickle. Woody Allen Darling, Dimitri and Pasquale. Bala, bala, bala and Valari. Something nice to study, phoning up a buddy, being in my nutty. Saying okie dokie, sing along a smoky, coming out a chokey. John Coltrane Soprano, Eddie Celentano, Bona Carino. Reasons to be cheerful, part three. Reasons to be cheerful, part three. Reasons to be cheerful, part three. Reasons to be cheerful, one, two, three. Yes, yes, dear, dear, perhaps next year, or maybe even never. In which 